Today on Sagittarian Matters, Anders Nilsson, plus vegan baby snacks with friend of the show, Morgan. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Hello from New York City. Producer Ponyo and I are here for a reading we just did with Eileen Miles at St. Mark's Poetry Project. We are about to do a queer comics workshop with the Society of Illustrators before we head to Philadelphia and Amalgam Comics next week. If you want to find us in November, we'll be in Portland, in Miami, in Seattle. So find us. Anyway. Thank you to everyone who came out for Sagittarian Matters Live in Portland at the Armory. It was our first live show, and we loved it. We're going to post it next week. Uh, My top things this week are a caramel apple I got from Lagusta's Luscious Commissary in New York. Um, Ponyo's top was meeting Zari yesterday. And here's my super hot tip. If you go to Superiority Burger on a Monday, they will feed you something outrageous called a TFT, which stands for Tofu Fried Tofu. I can't tell you how much fried is in that or how delicious it is. I just want to tell you to go go get it. Okay, Um, enjoy the show. And if you are a Ponyo's Friend Club member, please let us know at a live event and she will shake your hand. Bye. My friend Morgan, friend to the podcast friend to the world. Hey, Nicole. What have you brought me today? Oh, my God. Right now, we're going to be enjoying this course of dried mango snacks. We got multiple choices. We're going to eat um, some happy baby organic creamies. Ooh, mango flavor. Carrot mango and orange. And then we also have Karen's Naturals. Just mango. Premium. I'm sorry. Just premium mango. They both seem to be freeze-dried. They're both extremely crunchy. They're, we, both, they're both freeze-dried, but... Happy baby organic creamies. I'm gonna say this is made for babies. Uh yeah, I think it's made for babies, specifically the age of crawling baby. <laughs> as the package says, these look like tiny pennies, tiny pennies, or like pogs. They look like if you flattened a goldfish to yeah. look like a pog. Oh, these are good. Babies get everything. <sighs> these are so good. This makes me a happy baby. They have probiotics in them, and they're made with coconut milk. I'm gonna eat these every day. They do have a really cool phone number, which is one eight five five six four happy That's a good phone number. I dare you to go special order these from them. Hey, do you have um, happy baby... Happy creamies? <laughs> I'm looking for some happy creamies for my grown adult self, for my adult baby self. Okay, so we like happy creamies. Let's, mm. let's go to the adult food. Oh, my God. Wait, highlights include to eat? They're effortless. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question I need to ask a parent tonight. Why do kids eat mm. so much fruit? There's always so much fruit around when you're talking to my little kid. Because it's sugar. It's like our like lizard brain or whatever. Or people sugar like feed their like... babies so much fruit. Yeah, because babies like it. Because it's sweet. Cause okay. It's Next to the happy creamies, mm. Karen's Naturals Just Mango is kind of boring. We should have done this in the other order. Yeah. We should have eaten these first. If you're making like a dessert course, go Karen's Premium Mango first. And then finish with the happy creamies. That's like the piece de resistance. Depending on how much happy creamies cost, I would buy them again. Karen's just mango I would not buy because I like the Trader Joe's freeze-dried mango slices. Oh. That taste fucking awesome on your teeth. What do you mean taste good on your teeth? They feel good on your teeth. 
These are delicious added to tea juice and water. No, People thanks. People really, really, like, pushing the limits on their, uh... You know what, Karen? If you wanted a wet mango, you shouldn't have freeze-dried it, okay? <laughs> Keep it wet. If I was looking for a ripe, delicious mango, I wouldn't go to the dry section. Karen. I only shop in the dry section, so I wouldn't know any different. It's the only way you get hydrated is by rehydrating things? <laughs> mm-hmm. It was established in 1985. This is a 1985 flavor to me. Yeah, I can tell. Mm-hmm. I like them. I don't need these camping. Would you buy them yourself? It's hard to say. Also, the thing is, like, imagine you're camping, and if you're, like, legitimately camping, and you take these with you, you're going to be so thirsty. It means you're going to have to carry a whole other gallon of water, which is going to just, like... <laughs> After you rehydrate them in your tin... No, in your mouth. You're going to be like, oh, my God, I'm dying of thirst. They're just still carrying as much water weight, if you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring some of those mango slices from Trader Joe's camping, and you're going to lose your mind. Yeah, wait. You bring me some baby food. Mm. I, would, I would buy these Happy Creamies if they were They're on sale. incredible. These are $5. I'm not doing it. Um, put, the, put these on ice cream. Put everything on ice cream. Are you kidding me? Just drink some water. Put that on ice cream. All right. Thanks, Morgan. <laughs> thanks, Mitchell. A word from our sponsors, the Prune Council. Hashtag Ripper Prune, Prunes for Bones, the Prune Council. Today's show is brought to you by Prune Council. Prune Council, where they say, try a prune. Try a prune, Prune Council. Anders Nielsen is the Ignatz Award-winning author of eight books, including Big Questions, Don't Go Where I Can't Follow, end and poetry is useless he joined me on morgan's snack tasting couch with cat friend of the show melina to talk about his new comic tongues which you can get at andersbreckhousenielsen.com anders nielsen welcome to sagittarian matters thank you happy to be here we are sitting on a couch in my friend, uh, friend of the show, Morgan's house. Morgan's not here, so we're not eating any kind of weird expired vegan food, which we would be doing if she was here. That's what she does on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Producer Ponyo is wearing her headphones. Uh, she is doing the levels, checking the mics. And uh, in Morgan's stead, we have guest cat, Melina, who is uh, licking her foot. And, and that's it. All right. Sounds good. All right. That's what we're doing. Go. This is probably like most of the other interviews you've yeah. been doing for your comics. I rarely do multi-species interviews, but I'm, I'm happy to, to break the mold. Thank you very much. By the way, I loved Tongues, your new comic, and I especially loved how you drew the monkeys. Ah, uh, yeah. The monkeys are hard to draw. Uh, actually, we, yeah, I, I expected the monkey to be much easier to, to figure out, but they're hard. Well, the ones, what are the, are they rhesus monkeys you chose? Or spider monkeys? They're kind of spider monkeys. I looked at a lot of different monkeys because I wasn't... It's less important to me that it's like a particular kind than that it just sort of reads as as a monkey, as smallish monkey. So yeah, I looked at spider monkeys and I looked at... um, I don't know. Yeah, a couple different kinds. I think these ones are hard for me drawing this kind of monkey that you drew because their eyes are so big that they look really crazy and so it's a little bit hard to humanize them because they don't really have like whites of their eyes yeah you do sort of imagine it would be easier to give them expression but actually their expressions aren't super evocative i don't think often yeah well these ones looked really good i thought you started 
You kind of, you self-published for a second. Towards the beginning, you made kind of, um, like, zines and comics. And then you were published, or you have been published, you know, on and off by other people. But you self-published this comic. Mm -hmm. Do you see, what are the differences for you, or what made you decide to self-publish? You know, like, the way it worked for me was I was self-publishing. I was doing, you know, putting together the comics as I could, as I made a little bit of money from each one, I would work my day job a little less. Like I had a job and this was semi-conscious was to have a job that had a lot of flexibility. So like I was a cook and I could, I could tell, like I could take off for a month if I wanted to go do some events or little by little, as I started making a little bit of money, like I got the first, uh, royalty check from dogs and water which was my first book and i just made the decision like okay here's a little chunk of money i'm gonna like go from working five days a week to going to work four days a week mm -hmm. and like see if i can handle it so yeah like i think that's good advice don't don't jump in with both feet but like try to arrange your life and arrange your day job to serve uh you know, the thing that you want to do, whether it's comics or being a painter or whatever, being a band. Yeah. I kind of, I did a similar thing where I had two day job, two part-time day jobs, and then I was doing art and then I got a high paying illustration job. And at the time my, my bills were such that I was like, this job will pay for me to live for six months. Or like okay. I can quit one of my day jobs. And then by the end of the six months, I will have figured out, I was like, my task is I have six months now to figure out how to keep going after that right. six months with only one day job. And then art is my other job. Right. So I kind of always had a backup just in case. Right. So. And like having a backup just in case. So like, here's the opposite. I'll, I'll now give the precisely the opposite advice. Okay. <laughs> sort of arranging your backup to serve your, you know, comics is great. But I also watch people, um, make their art serve their backup and then the art goes away. What do you mean? Make your art serve your backup. Um, I think there's a sense in which if you have a backup plan, you will use your backup plan. Like, I think part of, part of being uh, successful in quotes is not really having another choice. And I think it's like, if you, you know, I don't know. It's like if you're an art student and your parents really want you to have something, uh, that will pay the bills. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't want to tell people like, don't worry about paying your bills. But I think if you, you know, if you arrange your life, so the important thing is the, the, the graphic design job that you're going to get, not the comics that you want to draw or the paintings that you want to make. Like it's really easy for that stuff to take over your life and for the, the space for art making to get smaller and smaller and smaller and disappear. So, yeah. That's, a, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Mike dropped. <laughs> your art is the most important thing. Well, I don't, did you, um, or if it's not, then it's not. But, yeah. you know, but if it is, then you got to make sure you're acting like it, I guess.
Well, how did you get to this point? Because you, you went to art school. I never, I didn't go to art school. I never, I didn't want anything from my art, I guess. You know, like I, or I guess coming from punk and coming from zines, I never thought I could have anything from my art aside from like community and like cool. Right. Oh, like my ideal, I was like, maybe I can make like 800 copies of my zine someday. That would be success to me. Right. And so then as I went, anything I got just seemed like a bonus. And I was like, oh my God. Wow. Cool. And I find that that was really helpful for me compared to people I meet that are young that are like waiting for the moment when something happens or feeling entitled to something happening because they've made a financial investment in it Mm -hmm. or like a school time investment in it. Mm -hmm. Like how is your kind of view on artistic accomplishment versus success or what you feel? I don't know what you feel like is a good artist life. How does that changed? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, like when I was in school, the idea, I think I remember having a particular idea, like maybe someday I will only have to work a day job, like two days a week. Um, so like now I don't really have a day job, like my financial situation might be better if I did, but, uh, but yeah, the truth is like, I can get by just on my work which is beyond what i thought was what i really thought was possible like maybe i should have been more ambitious as a as a (laughs) as an art student but um but yeah i think i like i feel the way you did like for me art was just the thing i did and so the fact that this crazy idea that other people would be interested in it and would like somebody was going to pay me money to like read my little zines was yeah felt super magical and i and it it still kind of does um often like sometimes i have to remind myself like this is magical like appreciate this not everybody gets to do it you know you you hang out with friends and hear about what it's like to work in an office or whatever and like i am really glad that i don't have to do that i feel as a as a fan as a reader I feel very grateful that you have attributed as much time as you have to your work because you're so prolific. I remember, was it Big Questions? One of your books came out and it was so big. I literally, I got it, at first I got it from the library and I kept, but I couldn't read it in time. So I had to buy it. I couldn't read it in time because I kept, <laughs> I'd like to read books at night in bed, but it was so big. I was like afraid for my life of dropping it on my face. <laughs> So I would try to read it in bed, and I really could not. And so then, yeah, I had to go another path. I don't actually don't love when people tell me they got my book from the library because I'm like, buy the fucking book. But <laughs> well, my mother was a librarian, so I'm very uh, appreciative of libraries. They do buy a lot of books. Uh, okay. So so yeah, viva libraries. My favorite thing to do, or was I don't I don't belong to the library in LA, but to get books from the library and then see if it's a book I feel I need to have in my life right. to reference again and again. And I mean, I my by. thing with libraries is that I'm very bad at returning books, so it actually ends up being cost effective for me to buy books because otherwise the fines will be more than the book costs. So then you're really giving back to the library in fines. Right. But all that is to say, you're so prolific. You've made. I don't know if you have a tally in your head, but I know that you've made thousands of pages of printed work. And so it makes me glad that you do not, in fact, work in an office and that you're doing this. Um, so your work for my I, I know that you 
did other forms of art at the same time or before you did comics, but your comics seemed like they used to be in black and white. And now I see more and more color. And I wonder if there was a transition and if this is, is this easier on your hands in some way? Definitely, definitely not easier on my hands. Uh, color is hard work. Uh, and I'm still figuring it out. So like this book was really my first venture into full color comics I mean, I've I've done some color comics in various ways, but never like book length. Um, and I'm still figuring out how to make this, how how to make the color like efficient. What do you use? It's all. Uh, I mean, the cover is a gouache painting, but the insides are all done in Photoshop. Um, I played around quite a bit with like I tried to color some of the pages with gouache, and it didn't work very well. Like it just wasn't. Like, I'm a little bit of a control freak, so I need to be able to, like, continue to make adjustments um, all throughout the process, and, and Photoshop just allows me to do that. What is your astrological sign? <clears throat> Scorpio. Oh, you might be one of the first Scorpios we've ever had on the podcast. I just, last week, I was talking to John Porcelino, and he was a Virgo, and Aaron Renier was sitting near, and he's a Virgo. And Alison Bechdel is a Virgo. And I was like, why are so many Virgos attracted to comics? Because like, we're control freaks. Hmm. This is what I thought when you were saying, like, you kind of need to... I was like, you're kind of a perfectionist. And I was like, our cartoonists... I was like, our, our... I have a lot of... The, we, the listeners know I have a lot of Capricorn in my chart, who's also like a very diligent, hardworking, no fun kind of astrological sign. Uh, are all cartoonists control freaks in some way? Are we trying to control or make sense of a chaotic world? by reimagining it or I don't know you know what I mean I mean in the sense that a lot of art forms are collaborative it's like if you're in a band you're collaborating if you're making a movie you're collaborating even if you're in charge like you're at the mercy of other people's abilities and like vision and I think for me like doing comics is attractive partly because I'm in control of the entire thing like i'm the actor i'm the cinematographer i'm the director i wrote the script i did you know it's like i get to control the whole thing and i think that's you know super very much my attraction to it i just i kind of i used to be a karaoke jockey a karaoke dj and i kind of think like when people do a duet I'm like, don't do a duet. The other person's going to drag you down. <laughs> like, you're not going to have a high-quality performance if you do a duet. The other person's not going to care as much as you, whatever. So when people sometimes are like, I want to do my first comic, but it's going to be a split or something, I'm like, no, don't do it. They'll drag you down. Yeah. And I mean, I think, like, that's probably my instinct, very much so. Like, I've done a lot of collaborative stuff, and I never – I don't feel like it – it's like there is there is a surrender to it. Like I think collaborations work the best when there is the right balance of surrender and control and conflict. Like I think some of the great like bands are great because there's like tension between different creative people. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm gonna ask you our standard question. What do you think it's like to date a cartoonist? <laughs> Either from being either things people have screamed at you as they're slamming the door or things you've experienced or witnessed or anything. Um, 
I think people, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think like a cartoonist probably wants to be in their studio working a lot. Um, probably is like, doesn't make as much money as you would imagine. Uh, it's probably, cartoonist is probably not the easiest person to date. But so rewarding. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had the experience of like dating somebody and then they come visit you at a comic show and they're like, what the hell is this? What is going on here? Yeah, I guess, I guess. Yeah. Once upon a time. But I mean, it's like, I think it, it, it's just part of the package now. And like, I mean, my girlfriend now like was acquainted with the comics world a little bit. Um, so yeah, I haven't had, I haven't had to like explain too much ever. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) She's like, I get it. Yeah. You are listening to Sagittarian Mars with Nicole Georges and Ponyo Georges. Uh, Producer Ponyo is getting scratched right now. Um, when I when we were hanging out in Ohio with John Porcelino, we were taught we had middle he was talking about Buddhism, obviously. And Ponyo broke free of Aaron and ran after some children barking at them. And to Ponyo, that's like pet me. The children did not see it that way. <laughs> the children started screaming and crying. And the dad, instead of picking the children up, dragged the children behind him as he advanced towards Ponyo trying to kick her in the head as she was barking. Um, and there was a lot of drama on the podcast. Today is kind of the opposite of that, where she is. She looks a little bit like roadkill right now. Yeah, she looks like she's enjoying herself very much. She is. Um, so you you don't do a lot of autobio, for the most part. You do fiction. Um, you did have the autobio book, Don't Go Where I Can't Follow. Am I getting the name correct? Mm-hmm. I read it in, I read the original version of it. My production assistant had it when he was scanning the terrible 14 by 17 pages for calling Dr. Laura. So I would be sitting in his office while he was like scanning and Photoshopping or whatever. And then he had it because it was like a deep cut and he worked at a bookstore and he's such a huge fan of yours. And I was like, what the hell is that? He's like, oh, it's just this book. I was like, what? I was like, where can I get it? He's like, you can't get it. It's out of print. So I've only read it once because I had to borrow his and weep over that with no idea that it would then get reprinted. Um, how do you feel about still talking about that book? Or, and can you describe that book a little bit? Um, yeah, okay. So that book came out in, I don't even know, 2006 probably. So um, for those who don't know, um, in 2005, my girlfriend at the time was diagnosed with cancer um, in the early part of the year. And... Um, the cancer killed her by the end of the year. Um, and then I, I actually had a book sort of like a little zine in mind, um, before she got sick, I sort of had, cause we used to do, we used to go on trips and shit would go badly a lot. Um, and so there was, there was this kind of little weird record of the, uh, travel mishaps that I had thought about putting together, um, as a little zine. 
because it wasn't really comics related. There were comics. There was basically like a couple pages of comics that would have gone in that book. So when she died, um, I decided to kind of put that thing together basically as a memorial to her and just make a few copies for friends and family, people that knew her. Um, but as I worked on it, it kind of got bigger and, uh, more complicated to produce. It really, I really wanted it to be in color. So I ended up asking, um, Chris at Drawn and Quarterly if he would want to put it out, um, which he said yes. And so that book came out. So it's, a. it is kind of a little collection of pieces about travel. It's kind of chronicles our relationship a little bit and then ends with her illness and time in the hospital and then her death. So it's, yeah, it's a, a very effective tearjerker. Um, and I ended up letting it go out of print for a while just cause it was like, I hadn't really intended for it to be a thing for a mass audience and it felt complicated in various ways. Um, to have it out in the world. Um, yeah, you said I don't do a lot of autobio and that's like, I am a pretty private person for the most part. So having something like that out in the world felt like, like once I was through the really intense, like grieving process, I remember taking a look at the book and just being like, holy shit, what did I just show people? <laughs> um, so I, I, I took it off the market for after the first printing sold out. Um, but I do kind of feel like, like I like the book as like, I think it does a thing that is a little unusual in visual storytelling. Like I said, it's not mostly comics, but it, it uses photos and objects, um, from our life to tell the story. Um, which I would like to revisit actually. Like, I feel like that's a, a weirdly underutilized storytelling form. Um, so at a certain point when, when some time had gone by and I felt like more emotionally equipped to, to handle it, um, I decided to re-release the book because there was also like it had, it was received very well. Um, it was a very small printing, but it kind of got a lot of, notice I think probably partly because it was very raw and people I don't know I think stories like that intense autobiographical stories are pretty compelling for people for whatever reason but um and then it was I mean I I so you know I've written about death of you know family member and death of my dog and a lot of hard moments and for me I guess it is it's somewhat cathartic just because it's forcing me to work through it in slow motion, to re-experience mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. in slow motion by spending like, you know, six hours at a time writing about cancer or like the worst moments of my childhood or my life. Mm-hmm. Um, was it helpful for you to like to you added more to it for the reprinting? Um, and then, you know, you had the original experience of creating it. Was it helpful to you? to work through it in that way? I think like, um, yeah, making that book was helpful. I sort of hated thinking about it as therapy. 
-hmm. Like I really wanted to think about it as art, not as therapy. And those things felt very different. Um, but it had like doing that book and the one, uh, follow up to it, or I don't know, I did another book that was more about like specifically about the grieving process. I think it changed the way I think about what art is and what storytelling is. And like, um, yeah, I think that working through that stuff and like telling that story over and over, I think that's super important. I think that's like a huge part of what it means to tell stories is to like make your experience, give structure to your experience and make it feel like it actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like my understanding of my life was just like completely, you know, demolished when she died. So there, it's like, you have to, you have to have an idea of the, the, the plot line of your life in your head. So like to when it, when the one, the, the existing one gets dismantled suddenly, like it's through telling the story that you create a new one that's like functional and useful. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's a huge part of what, what that book did for me. To tie it into a contemporary thing, um, I saw that you kind of, you posted about it on Facebook or I feel so cheap to say it out loud, <laughs> Facebook or something when there was like the big ACA vote with everybody being like, let's, you know, everyone with pre-existing conditions, let's just, you know, kick them to the curb. Let's take away everyone's health care. You kind of connected the two. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, um, yes, I did post it on Facebook, also on my blog. Um, I mean, the, the simple fact is like ever since Cheryl died, healthcare has been a thing in the political, in our political world, but it feels very personal to me because you know, basically she didn't have insurance. And so she put off going to the doctor when she probably should have. And which means that, you know, her illness might've gotten caught much earlier than it did. That's not a unique story at all. Like that's a huge part of, uh, healthcare in this country is that like, I mean, it, it feels sort of cheap to say it, but the fact, the simple fact is like people die because they don't have health insurance because they can't afford it. So like there's a tax on being poor, which is like, you're more likely to die or get super sick. Um, so that's, you know, I don't know. It's like that debate felt super personal to me. Um, and has over the years, a couple times, like prompted me to sort of get off the couch and actually try to do a little bit of something. The, the recent post that you mentioned, like all I did was write some postcards. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote a bunch of postcards over the course of the, of the, the Trump care debate. Um, just to try to, you know, add my voice to the conversation that Senate, you know, to the, the people screaming at the senators. Um, several years ago, like when Obamacare was getting passed, I also did some, I organized like a, a benefit among a bunch of cartoonists to try to raise money to, you know, push that effort a little bit to the left and, and support it as much as I could. Yeah. It's so valuable. And also, I mean, you know, we have 
cartoonist friends that have had cancer and survived in, by paying bills out of pocket or having benefits or whatever, but now they have pre-existing conditions. Right. So it's even like, you know, if you survive cancer and go on to live another day, then you could still get, right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's just the most, in, we have the most insane, most useless system. Because like, even if you do have insurance, as I have recently found out now that I have insurance, Ooh, la, la. <laughs> like it's, it's often terrible. And then, and you just be, get into this, this argument with your insurance company about what they're going to pay for. It's like, it's just not necessary. It's completely silly. Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you blue apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts. Because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal. Two, hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever, but in the meantime, thank you. We appreciate your support and I look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. That was Ponyo's voice. Don't be scared. Bye. Big thank yous this week to Alec Longstreth, Agnes Barton Sabo, Kristen Scarzone, Colleen Barr, and Shoshana Ruth Wechter. I hope I did not just butcher all of your names. Thank you. How have you um, found your place in the world as an artist after the election? Like, has your relationship to art changed or your relationship to having a voice or feeling like it's valuable changed? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, ha- I have always felt... Um, whatever, we're all political people, I suppose, but... I've always, like, I grew up in a household where politics were very uh, present and always being discussed. And so for me, like, like the form that my work takes and the subject, subjects that I deal with and the stories that I tell generally have some sort of a political uh, angle. It's rarely explicit, but it's often, you know, implicit in some way. Um, I'm, I'm almost never, I almost never really want to tell an explicitly political story or like, I mean, I, I was asked to do a thing about Trump. I sometimes contribute to this Italian, um, news magazine and they asked me to do something about Trump's election. And I just felt like it was such a cacophony of people of like sadness and, <laughs> anger and whatever uh disbelief 
I just felt like I didn't really have any new thing to add to the to the clamor. Um, but I do feel a responsibility. I mean, I feel an interest in just addressing the world as it is, and politics are part of that. Um, like, every story is political, and so I try not to, like, shy away from that stuff. Um, I'm aware of representation. Um, I did a piece few months ago for uh, the New York Times Book Review, they asked me to do a thing about um, a book that was important to me. Um, and I did a piece about Steven Pinker's book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which is about the decline of violence in the world. Um, and in particular, his discussion of the role that literature played and the novel in particular in um, presenting the world through the eyes of people who were otherwise considered like less than human. So like in the 1700s when the novel became a thing, there were these books that came out from the point of view of like poor women uh, or like maids in wealthy households or whatever that were, you know, huge bestsellers. And I, you know, I haven't read them. I don't know like what exactly what they were like. I'm sure they were not like the most amazing literature, but they helped people see that everybody's life, you know, these, these people's lives are actually not that much different. Their concerns are not that much different. They are actually worthy of consideration. And that's like, that's a thing that has, that's like a thing that literature does, um, and has had actually like measurable, super positive impacts in people's lives over the centuries. Um, and so like, like, again, I'm not going to be super explicitly political in my work, but I feel like as somebody who's an author and like has a platform to depict different kinds of characters and different points of view in the world, like we sort of have a responsibility to take that seriously and, and, um, yeah, just, just be aware of that power sort of. Yeah. Well, the, I don't know if she's going to be the hero of tongues or one of the central characters of tongues is a young black girl. I don't know if she's American. I can't tell where she's from. I can't tell where anyone's from. I can't tell where anything's happening or else I would call her African-American. But So, I mean, this girl is potentially maybe going to save the world. Was that on purpose because of representation or did this character just come to you? Um, so the girl is African. She's uh, East African. Um I'm not sure how deeply I'm going to get into her particular biography. Like in my head, she has some, probably has some connection to like the Western world. Um, but the reason that she's East African has more to do with the plot of the book. Um, and the, yeah, the story that's getting told. And so I can't say too much about that, but, uh, on the edge of my seat. <laughs> okay. 
Um, but yeah, like, but yeah, that's, it's, you know, it's also sort of not an accident. Like I've, my point of view as a white guy is like very well represented in the world. Um, there's, you know, there's also some white guys in the book. So like they're in there, that's Mm -hmm. fine. Um, but I, I, I hopefully am not going to be somebody that's telling stories about only people like me. Yeah. The voice of the white man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I, the last thing I want to say about the book before I ask you my final question is, so do you, there's like a lot of dead people in this book and I don't know if you are, uh, just master at figure drawing or if you go to figure drawing classes or if you Google things or if you make people pose for you, how do you draw bodies? so well because i was looking at it and i was like did he have to google all these dead people to draw this mm. like did you have did you have to like have you had to google people like in different states of dis- decomposition or disrepair uh no i just kind of make it up uh i sometimes will what's the thing on your computer where it's like photo booth mm-hmm. i'll do that not for the dead people probably so much yeah, I just make it up. I mean, it's like, you know, as a young boy reading, like, X-Men comics, there was a lot of, like, copying dead bodies, probably. Mm-hmm. Copying weird, muscular but see, superheroes. I, I read X-Men, and I never copied a dead body. I would just <laughs> copy the people, like, flying or posing in some awkward way. Right. So I could see their whole outfit. I mean, the truth is, dead people don't look that different than sleeping people, often. I mean, I guess this guy, like, has his arms and legs splayed out in yeah. a weird way, but... So you like go your girlfriend's sleeping, she wakes up and you have a sketch pad. She's like, what are you doing? You're like, oh, nothing. You just look dead. Just. <laughs> well, I'm glad to know that you weren't having to look at like terrible images in order to draw these. I also, I have so many pictures on my computer of me in different poses, like acting out various states of like fighting with people or in grief or having right. my hands in different ways. Right. Uh, <clears throat> I remember reading that Hergé who drew Tintin. He didn't ask his assistants to adopt poses. He would adopt the pose and then have his assistants draw him because that was the only way he knew that the pose would be exactly right. That's so weird. Yeah. Wow. So I don't have assistants to do that, but... Ponyo, the dog really needs to get an opposable thumb because she, (laughs) for the most part... But she does actually act as a dog stand-in. When I have to show someone holding a dog, it's different than you would just think in your head. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of that stuff is... There's just, I, also, I feel like you would be good at drawing a dog. I like at drawing this dog. I just have to say, I feel like she doesn't look that different than your monkeys or different (laughs) like cats that you've drawn. She's sort of a miniature version of the dogs that I usually draw too. Yeah. So I just, Ponyo, I feel like you're in the right landscape right here. Okay. Do you have any advice for young cartoonists or any advice for old cartoonists? This is my new spin on an old question. Um, my advice for all of the above is quit and let let me have the market to myself. Great. It's great. Done. <laughs> uh, advice to young cartoonists. Like, draw a lot. I don't know. You said that everybody just says draw a lot and don't give up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, when like you- take... Okay, here you go. Okay. Take your covers seriously. How seriously? 
um, like look at the history of book covers and like the history of graphic design and don't just do the most obvious thing. And I would actually say the same thing about panels. Like I'm super excited about playing around with panels. I've always done weird panel stuff. Um, and I think, I think in alternate, it's funny cause you look at like Marvel or whatever and they do all kinds of weird panel shit, yeah. you know? And like, I think alternative comics often like maybe it's cause the stories are the important part and being flashy and selling like units is not, is not the important part. But I think in alternative comics, sometimes people are less, uh, playful with their like panel structures and their covers than they could be. I feel like you're so good at that, but I, I, I didn't even, I mean, I was reading this and I was like, Oh my God, like, it's so beautiful. I end up, I end up for the most part only messing with panel structure because I get bored because I'm so bored. It's so boring to draw comics. Like you're just spending so long, <laughs> you know, like you like, maybe it was fun for one second when you were thinking of it, but then you're drawing and you're like four hours and you're like, fuck, that's so boring. So the only reason I ever vary it is for myself. Yeah. Do you, I mean, the, the reason I first started varying it a lot was cause I just hated measuring that shit out. Like getting out the ruler was not the part I wanted to be working on. But I, I have a follow up question for you, which is that, um, you know, sometimes I'll have students and the students before they have mastered how to get your eye across a page and like even a grid, they want to break structure. Mm -hmm. And so then I end up being like a cop being like, please, the most interesting part of your work is not going to be that you used a triangular panel. The most interesting part of your work is going to be the story. But I feel like you as a human being, I mean, you've been making comics for so long and you're so adept at telling a story and moving our eye where you want it to be. I mean, was there a moment where you're like, okay, now I can like, fuck it up. Like fuck with it. I mean, readability is, is definitely the most important thing. So like if the panel structure is getting in the way of readability, then that's for sure a problem. Do you have a favorite page in here? Or is it, was there a page thing? Page 11 that, is probably. Oh my God, what is page 11? I like that you had the number in your head. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm giving some, I've been giving some talks and like page 11 is an example that I use. This one? Yeah. Okay. Can you describe what's happening on page 11? Okay. So there's a narration about a dream that this weird, like camouflage looking guy with stuff growing out of his back, it seems to be having... Um, the panels are sort of rounded and organic shapes and they have organs and arms coming out of them. It's very dark and kind of like, maybe it's dusk or maybe it's like dawn and he's got his hands stuck in the mud and there's somebody grabbing his hands. (laughs) I, by the way, if you, the page writer Carson, his hands are like in the mud uh-huh. So there's like shortening of his fingers because his hands are in the mud. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was a masterful moment because like if you just knew that his hands were going into the mud, but you can't really tell. This is like way too deep for an audio podcast. So people are like, what the <laughs> hell are you talking about? You got to buy the book, I guess. You got to buy the book. Well, how can people buy the book? Uh, they can buy it from me directly at my website. Um, there are a number of stores around the world, around the country that stock it. I just sent an order to a store in China. You can go to China so to buy it? So if you need to go to China, go ahead. 
yeah, maybe the simplest thing is to uh, go to my website. And what is your website? AndersBreckusNelson.com. How do they spell the Breckus part? Uh, B-R-E-K-H-U-S. Cool. Do you have a Patreon or anything? I don't, but if anybody wants to pay me monthly, then they should feel free to do that. Okay, great. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem. Panya? Well done, Panya. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.